while you're turning there, uh, allow me to go ahead and apologize for my voice, uh, which is deciding this morning uh, to disappear, uh, which is fun. Uh, so I've got reserve water. I'm going to drink it like it's going out of style. Uh, forgive me for that. Um, my hope this morning is that God has spoken through the mouth of a donkey before, and maybe he will speak through the mouth of a man who sounds like one. So uh, we're in uh, Luke 15 this morning, verses 1 through 7. Uh, let me read those to you. should be on the screen as well. Uh, this is Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. This is God's word to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've told us uh, what we should believe, uh, that you've told us uh, how we should live, at your, live as your people, and Father, that you've told us how it is that Christ came to rescue us. Father, let that truth be the primary reality that gets us up in the morning and tucks us in at night. In Christ's name we pray, amen. When I was in high school, Buncombe County Schools uh, which is where I'm from. That's the, the county where Asheville is. Uh, Buncombe County Schools added a new uh, feature to their report cards. Uh, and teachers were able not only to give you grades, but to add comments uh, under their grades. And it wasn't like they were writing a personal note. It was pretty clear that it was just something where they filled in a code and it would just generate a generic comment. Uh, and it was things like, um, forgets to bring notebook. Uh, or uh, a pleasure to teach, uh, or, you know, the worst one, of course, was uh, fails to meet expectations. My brother and I quickly found that it was way more fun to compare the comments uh, than it was to actually compare grades. Um, I won't comment on uh, who got more fails to meet expectations, but uh, it wasn't me. <laughs> In our story today, there's, there's a similar thing going on. The Pharisees and the scribes uh, are together, and they are evaluating Jesus. They are looking at what Jesus is doing, and they are comparing that with what they would expect from a teacher uh, or a rabbi or a holy man or even really the, the Messiah. And what their evaluation was is clear. Their evaluation of Jesus is that he was failing to meet expectations. And the reason was... Very simple. The Pharisees had cast an image of the Messiah in their own image. They had drawn a Messiah in their own image. In other words, they believed a false story about themselves, about their role, about their own awesomeness, and they decided that the Messiah was going to look and act a lot 
like them. They had a false Messiah and a false Christ. And I think if we're really, really honest with ourselves, we have to admit that that we're tempted to do the same things. And sometimes we do it unconsciously, but we assume that Jesus really looks a lot like us, that Jesus kind of acts like us, that he cares about the things that make us happy, or he cares about the things that make us upset, that Jesus is really just a lot like we are. What does your Jesus look like this morning? As we think through that question of what does our Jesus look like, there's going to be uh, one thing that I want us to see in this passage that I hope changes maybe the way our Jesus looks. And that is this, that Jesus rejoices over sinners. Jesus rejoices over sinners, and that is fantastically good news for us, but it can also be tremendously frustrating for us as well. It's good news that makes us uncomfortable. So what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of set the scene. This is kind of how Luke does this passage. Uh, He sets the scene a little bit there in verses 1 and 2, and then he tells us a story. And we're just going to basically walk through that story. We're going to look at kind of each major group of characters in the story. Uh, But let's start by setting the scene. Let's look uh, there at verses 1 and 2. And in those two verses, what Luke is doing is he is giving us an introduction to this parable. Uh, But more than that, he's giving us an introduction to all of the parables. There are three parables uh, in Luke 15. We looked at one of them a few weeks ago, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. So let me read verses 1 and 2 and get a sense of how that kind of sets the scene for the story we're looking at this morning. Uh, this is what's happening, Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This seems pretty simple, pretty straightforward. There's some people coming to see Jesus, and there's some other people that don't like the people who are coming to see Jesus, and they're upset about it. There's actually a little bit more going on under the surface, so let's see what that is. Uh, Luke identifies two groups of people that are coming to see Jesus. You've got tax collectors, and you've got sinners. You know, what's the deal with those two groups of people? Why were they especially noteworthy? Why was their attendance causing problems? Well, the tax collectors were probably the most despised people in ancient Israel. They were uh, collaborators uh, with the Romans who were occupying Israel. Uh, They were uh, greedy. They were unpatriotic. The way they got paid was the Romans would say, hey, we want, you know, $10,000 from your region, and whatever you collect on top of that, you get to keep. Pretty good way to make some money, and the tax collectors took full advantage. They were greedy. They overtaxed the people. They took money unjustly from people. And so you can imagine they were despised. Um, They weren't really considered Jews, even though they were Jewish. Um, They weren't Romans. They were just kind of puppets of the Romans. They were sort of tools that the emperor was using to keep the Jewish people subjected. They were despised. They were hated. They were reviled. I was trying to think of even a group of people that would be in this category today, and like the only thing I could even come close to would be something like a drug dealer. But even that's not quite the picture. It'd be more like a slave trader, someone who just does something so vile that you can't even fathom it. The kind of people that you hear about them and it just makes you want to spit. 
Um, that's what tax collectors were in ancient Israel. So you can imagine that they were ostracized. They were isolated. They didn't have any real friends. They didn't belong to the Romans. They didn't belong to the Jews. They lived at the margins of society, isolated, without friends or neighbors. So who are the sinners? If that's the tax collectors, who are the sinners? I think, you know, we might be tempted to think that sinners are just kind of everybody else because everyone's a sinner, but that's not really what, what Luke is conveying here. Because to call somebody a sinner meant that they were notoriously a sinner. It wasn't just a person who, you know, was working on, a, on his car and like hits his thumb with a hammer and like whispers a bad word under his breath. Um, it's not this kind of sinner. It's a person like, uh, like an adulterer uh, or a murderer or a, a prostitute or a thief or someone whose life is characterized by a particular sin. But these people too would have existed on the margins of society. People didn't care for them. People didn't like them. People didn't want to be around them. Tax collectors and sinners both were at the margins of Jewish society in the ancient world. And you get a clue as to why they're coming to hear Jesus from what the Pharisees say. They're coming to see Jesus because Jesus receives them and eats with them. He receives them and eats with them. To receive someone means Jesus welcomed these people. Jesus welcomed sinners. Jesus welcomed tax collectors. He extended hospitality to them. He acted like he was glad to see them. He didn't shun them. He didn't shame them. He welcomed sinners to himself. And not only did he welcome them, he ate with them. This isn't like at the food court in the mall. Uh, that they were like in the same vicinity and were eating near one another. Um, but in the ancient world, eating with someone conveyed this idea of, of acceptance, of, of friendship, um, that they were, they were peers. So here you are having these two groups of people who exist at the margins of society who are undesirable people to be near. And Jesus is welcoming them and he is eating with them, showing an interest in them, caring for them, extending them hospitality, and the Pharisees are not real excited. But think of how powerful that must have been for the tax collectors and the sinners. A group of people with no friends, with no neighbors, with no prospects for advancement who live at the margins of society, there is a man, not only a man, but a, but a teacher who is willing to be near them and who is willing to eat with them. They probably didn't care what Jesus was saying. They were glad to have some company. They would have been there if he was just talking about the weather. They were excited to be near someone who welcomed them and who ate with them. It's an incredibly powerful image, but it's frustrating for the Pharisees and the scribes. They're not happy with this. It says, it says that they don't just note that he's with these people. They grumble that he's with them. They grumble that Jesus is receiving sinners and tax collectors and that he is eating with them. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes were the religious elites of ancient Israel. They were the religious elites. They were the conscience of the nation. And what the Pharisees wanted more than anything else was for God's people to obey God's law so that God would bless the nation. That's what the Pharisees wanted. 
Uh, they wanted God's people to get really, really excited about obedience for God's law, and they thought that if enough people would just get on board with the law, if enough people would just start obeying, then God would send the Messiah, who was a military leader, and he was going to throw off the Roman oppressors, and the nation of Israel would be restored to prominence again. That's what the Pharisees wanted. And so when they looked around, they saw sinners, and what they saw was the problem. Sinners were the problem. Sinners were why God was not blessing ancient Israel. Sinners were the reason God had not yet sent his Messiah. Sinners were the reason that the nation of Israel was still occupied by the Roman Empire. And so in an effort to be helpful, they thought that they could apply a little peer pressure to sinners and tax collectors and get them to change their ways. And so what they did is they shunned sinners. They shamed them. They relegated them to the margins of society in hopes that those people would either get with the program and start obeying, or maybe they would leave, but either way, the nation's going to be better. That's what the Pharisees are trying to do. They want God to restore the nation. Sinners are the problem. And so when they see Jesus welcoming sinners and eating with them, they're thinking this guy is encouraging sin. He is encouraging the problem. He is accepting them like they are when what they are is the reason that we are still under the thumb of the Romans. They are enormously frustrated with Jesus. I think that sometimes we can fall into the same trap that the Pharisees fall into. And that is we can see sinners around us, sinners in the world around us, as the problem. And when we do that, when we start to see sinners as the problem, we start to be worried about things like encouraging sin by welcoming sinners. We get worried that, that welcoming sinners to be near us, to be part of our lives, is in some way encouraging them in their sin. That's what the Pharisees are worried about here. Now, I think I should say very clearly, Jesus is not encouraging sinners. Jesus is not encouraging sin. Jesus hates sin. Jesus went to the cross because he and God hate sin. But Jesus, in this passage, is more worried about welcoming sinners than he is about the perception that he is encouraging sin. Jesus wants to welcome sinners. He doesn't care that the Pharisees think he's encouraging sin. You see, the Pharisees want a Messiah who looks and acts and thinks like them, who has the same kind of respectable sensibilities that, that they have, and that is a danger to us to have that same idea. When we want a Messiah who looks like us, Jesus will always fail to meet expectations. So Jesus hears what's going on. He hears the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling. And to address that, he tells them a parable. And that's what we have in the rest of our passage here. Now, Stepping back for a second, let me tell you a principle for reading parables, um, a parable principle, if you will. Uh, in general, when you read a parable, there are as many points in the parable as there are characters uh, or groups of characters. 
Um, so in our parable today, we have three characters or three groups of characters. Uh, we're going to look at each one of those, and we're going to see what that says to us. You know, we're going to look at the shepherd, we're going to look at the sheep, and we're going to look at the friends and neighbors of the shepherd. We're going to see what each one of those tells us about who Christ is, what Christ is doing, and what that means for us. So as we look at the shepherd, it's, it's fairly obvious on the surface um, that Jesus is casting himself as the shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. And shepherds tend and feed and protect the sheep. And so the question is, what kind of shepherd do we have here? What kind of shepherd is Jesus? Well, we see that this shepherd has 100 sheep. That's what he tells us in verse 3. And he's lost one of them. One of them's gone. So he's got 99 sheep. The first thing we can note about this shepherd is that before he, wa- he goes after the wandering sheep, before he goes after the lost sheep, he cares for the 99. Did you notice that? Before he goes off after the sheep that has wandered away, he cares for the 99 sheep. Which man of you, having 100 sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country? The shepherd the shepherd provides for the safety and the nurture of the 99, even as he goes after the one lost sheep. And I highlight that point because sometimes I think we can be tempted to feel like Jesus stops caring for us once we're found. Like Jesus really, really cared about us when we were lost, but now we're found and, and, and our lives are just kind of a mess and we walk through hardship together, and we might be tempted to think that, that we're part of the 99, but maybe Jesus left us on a cliffside or something like that. And that's not the case. This is a shepherd who prepares a place for us, a shepherd who provides us with safety and with nurture and with sustenance. Jesus has provided all that we need as his people, and primarily Jesus has provided for us eternal safety and eternal provision. He cares for his 99, even as he seeks the lost sheep. That's one thing we see about our shepherd. Another thing we see is that he is the shepherd who goes and looks for the one lost sheep. Look at how he does that. Look at what the text says. It says, he will go after the one that is lost until he finds it. He goes after the lost sheep until he finds it. This is a a shepherd who is persistent, who has unflagging energy and enthusiasm for his sheep, who goes on a dogged pursuit of the one sheep that wanders away. Jesus does not look for his lost sheep like I look for golf balls when I play golf. My general strategy is I can't afford to play golf because I lose too many balls. Um, that's, that's one problem. But um, my general strategy when I'm playing golf is that if I can't see it from the cart path, I'm going to throw a hand wedge into the middle of fairway and keep playing. That's my general rule. I lose multiple sleeves of balls every time I play golf. Jesus does not do that with his sheep. He's not just driving down the cart path looking a little bit and deciding to move on and cut his losses. Jesus looks for the one sheep who wanders away. What does that tell us about what kind of shepherd he is? It tells us that he's a good shepherd, that he's a shepherd who cares for his sheep. 
that he is a shepherd who has the energy and the capacity to pursue the sheep and who finds the sheep worthy of being pursued. Jesus wants to pursue lost sheep because he's a good shepherd. That's what we see about our shepherd. Let's look at the sheep. I think in the parable, the sheep kind of represent people, just people in general. And what it tells us is that there are two kinds of people in the world, and I don't want to be oversimplistic. The parable is not telling us everything about everyone, but it's telling us a picture that is generally true, that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are lost people, and there are found people. It's an interesting image. Uh, Have you ever been lost? Like really lost, actually lost? Uh, It happened to me one time when I was in high school. Uh, I ran cross country one year, which is probably no surprise because this physique is clearly built for endurance sports. But uh, I ran cross country one year, and one day we went to practice, and we drove um, to a place that really wasn't far from the high school that I went to, but uh, it was just trails and kind of backed up to this wilderness area. And they said, all right, you know, go run for a few hours. Um, so me and some friends just kind of basically ran straight into the woods for three hours. Uh, it wasn't a great plan. <laughs> we realized at the end of that, though, that it was about time to get on the bus, and we had no idea where we were. And so uh, it, was, it was scary. It was kind of funny at first, and then we realized, like, you know, what's going to happen here? Like, are we going to be here for a while? Um, do we need to, like, start making a campfire? Um, which, of course, none of us knew how to do. So... <laughs> Uh, we were really fortunate because about that time we stumbled onto the Blue Ridge Parkway and guessed which direction the campground was where we started, and we were like five miles away from the entrance. I mean, it would have been, it was not good. Um, And my point in telling you that is that getting lost is something you can do to yourself. Getting lost is something that you can do. You are capable of getting yourself lost. And, And maybe that's you this morning. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you are lost in a huge mess of your own making. Maybe thinking that there is no amount of seeking that could find you. Maybe you think that if we knew about the darkness and the evil and the dark thoughts that you have, that no one would even want to talk to you if we were aware. You think that If we just knew what you've done, if we knew what motivated you and what was in your mind, that Jesus would want nothing to do with you. Friends, that is a lie. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Because what this parable tells us about this shepherd is that you are never too lost to be found by this shepherd. You are never too far gone. Jesus will seek after you until he finds you, and then he will pick you up, carry you tenderly back to his flock, and he will rejoice over you. And he's not going to do that because you're great. And he's not going to do that because you're awesome. He's not going to do that because one day you're going to do big things for the kingdom, or you're going to be an asset to the church. That is not why Jesus goes after the lost sheep. 
Jesus goes after the lost sheep. He goes goes after what's lost. He fixes what is broken because you bear his Father's image. You were created in the image of God. And Jesus wants you to bear that image rightly. Because when you bear God's image rightly, you reflect God's glory itself into the world that God has made. That is why Jesus chases the lost sheep. That's why Jesus also tells us that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who don't need repentance. Because every time a sinner repents, every time a lost sheep is found, God's glory is magnified all the more. The world sees more of its creator's glory. And so when Jesus finds you, Jesus doesn't just leave you like you are. Jesus fixes what is broken. He, he's building a flock from lost sheep. He fixes the lost sheep, and he makes you no longer a slave to the disordered desires, to the sin that once enslaved you. Jesus fixes his lost sheep. One other thing to note about the sheep, you can get yourself lost. In general, you can't get yourself found. Uh, I read the the story recently, uh, Unbroken. Maybe you guys have seen that book, some of you nodding. One person nodded, excellent. I'm glad you guys, two people, uh, two people read it. Uh, uh, about a great guy, Louis Zamperini, World War II hero, uh, wonderful, wonderful figure. Uh, his plane was shot down, or actually crashed from mechanical failure in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and drifted for 43, 47 days, something like that, on a raft. Um, he could not find himself, correct? There was no way for him to find himself. They were eventually picked up by uh, some, some Japanese forces in World War II, but But in general, we can't find ourselves. We can get ourselves lost. We cannot get ourselves found. And that's an important point for us to note because sometimes we can fall into the temptation of thinking that the 99 sheep who were found were just better sheep or that they were just smarter sheep. Well, Jesus doesn't leave the 99 to go after the one so that the 99 can just revel in their own awesomeness. They are only in the 99. They are only part of the flock because Jesus already found them. Because Jesus is building a flock from lost sheep, not smart sheep. These are not sheep that got it. These are not sheep that were better. And the point there is that both the lost and the found sheep are equally dependent upon the shepherd. The lost and the found sheep are equally dependent upon the shepherd. Nobody put themselves in the shepherd's flock. They are there because he sought them out and found them. The lost sheep can't find themselves. The found sheep don't become self-sufficient. And you know how I know that? You know how I know that that Jesus doesn't save us and then make us self-sufficient? I know that because he calls us sheep. Do you know much about sheep? Sheep. They're animals that can't get up when they get tipped over. These are, not, these are nature's D student. The sheep are not known for their intelligence, 
for their self-sufficiency. These are animals that walk themselves off of cliff sides. You're not self-sufficient. You're a sheep. You see, the flock exists because there's a good shepherd. Not because the sheep are awesome. Not because the sheep are impressive. But because the shepherd wants his sheep. That's what the sheep tell us. There's one other group in this parable. That other group is the friends and neighbors of the shepherd. He goes, he finds his lost sheep, he brings the lost sheep back to the flock, and then it says he calls his friends and neighbors and throws a party to rejoice over the lost sheep. Well, who are the friends and neighbors? That's kind of the question that we're left with today. Who, what's the point to be drawn from the friends and neighbors in the parable? I think there are two options, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think both are in play. The first option is that the friends and neighbors are, are the angels uh, in heaven. And you see that because, uh, again, you know, like verse 7 and 8, or verse 7, uh, there, is, there is joy in heaven, rejoicing over in heaven over one sinner who repents. Um, so there's a sense in which um, it's the angels who are rejoicing over the repentance of this one sinner. I think that's true. I think there's something else at play, too, and that's this. I think that the Pharisees and the scribes could be the friends and neighbors of the shepherd. But what would that mean? Jesus is not unconcerned with the Pharisees and the scribes. We see in the Gospels that he spends a lot of time arguing with them and, and talking with them, but Jesus is concerned to shepherd them as well. Jesus cares for the Pharisees and the scribes just like the shepherd in the parable cares for all of the sheep. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is inviting them to stop grumbling over the fact that he's welcoming sinners and tax collectors and instead to rejoice with him, to rejoice that the lost sheep are being found. Jesus is welcoming and inviting the Pharisees and the scribes to be his friends and his neighbors, to rejoice at God's mercy. We know from Scripture that some did. Uh, Nicodemus uh, was a Pharisee. We meet him in John's Gospel, uh, who ended up following Jesus. There are other Pharisees that did not. Um, some came to Jesus, some did not. And those that did not were Pharisees that were so devoted to the false story about the way the world was. They were so proud and impressed with themselves that they missed the very heart of the God whose law they so cherished. The Pharisees were so devoted to their false idea about God that they missed his heart. They cast a Messiah in their own image, and that Messiah disappointed them. You see, the Pharisees thought that they were shepherds, and they forgot that they were sheep. They forgot that they were only part of the flock to begin with because God had sought them out. God had cared for them and rejoiced over them. But his invitation to them, Christ's invitation to the Pharisees to, to be friends and neighbors, to rejoice over God's mercy, that shows us two things. And the first thing is this. 
It is really and actually dangerous for us to believe a false story about ourselves. It's dangerous for us to be impressed with ourselves, to appoint ourselves sort of keepers of morals. It's dangerous for us to read our own press releases. And the danger is that we're going to reduce the Messiah to our own image. We will try to cast a Messiah after our image. I think that if we're really honest, this is a particular danger for us in a time of enormous cultural change uh, that we see all around us, a time of cultural upheaval in many ways. I think we have to be careful not to cast a Messiah in our image and simply use Jesus to baptize what we really wish our society looked like. You see, Jesus is concerned for sinners. We have to be careful that we don't allow our concern for family values or traditional morals to blur Jesus' concern for sinners. You see, we are God's people. We are the people of God. We are the flock of God, people who were lost and have now been found. And we are charged with reflecting the character of our God to the world around us. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, one question we have to ask ourselves, is are we willing to extend the same kind of care and hospitality to sinners that Jesus did? That's the first thing that his invitation to the Pharisees shows us. The second thing is this. God's mercy is meant to be rejoiced over. His mercy is meant to be rejoiced over. And and what that means is when sinners come to hear Jesus, we see the Pharisees experience this. When sinners come to Jesus, things get awkward and messy and glorious all at the same time. If we welcome people like Jesus does, it's going to be uncomfortable because real, actual sinners might show up. And that's fun. These aren't people that struggle with respectable sins like perfectionism or greed or caring too much about what their lawn looks like. These are people that struggle with real sins, dark sins. But these are not people who are too far lost for the shepherd who seeks lost sheep. You see, friends, God's mercy is not contingent upon our comfort. Quite the opposite, in fact. God's mercy will frequently make us uncomfortable. Welcoming people is not easy. Notice that Jesus welcomed sinners and tax collectors, and it's really what got him crucified. Jesus was crucified because he broke away from the story that the Pharisees were telling themselves about the way the world was. He was crucified for welcoming the sinners and the tax collectors. And we are supposed to follow him. We're supposed to follow in his footsteps, not begrudgingly, but rejoicing. You see, we rejoice because God's mercy towards us is not just for our privilege, but it invites us to a great responsibility. We are not just saved for the benefit of experiencing eternal life in heaven with God, but we are saved so that we can participate alongside God on his mission to fill the earth with his glory. I knew that was coming. The most amazingly dignifying thing about the gospel 
is that we contribute to it nothing but the wandering intelligence of a wayward sheep. And God invites us to be part of what he's doing in the world. God invites us to be part of his mission to fill the earth with his glory. God invites us to be his friends and his neighbors and to rejoice with him when he shows mercy to sinners. How amazing is that? So as we conclude today, I want to just recap briefly what I said this morning and just offer five points of summary, which are each a sentence long, so don't let that make you despair. The first thing is this. Jesus is a shepherd who rejoices to pursue, find, welcome, rescue, fix, and care for lost sheep. Jesus is a shepherd who rejoices over finding lost sheep. That's the first thing. Second thing is, if you are here this morning and you are a lost sheep, you are not too lost. You have not gone too far to hide from the shepherd. You have not run too far that the shepherd cannot find you. Jesus will find you. Jesus will care for you. Jesus will rescue you and carry you back and make you part of his flock. The third thing is this. If you're here this morning and you're a found sheep, don't be impressed with yourself. You're still a sheep. You're still dependent on Jesus for care and for sustenance and for protection. You are not self-sufficient. You need the shepherd as much as the lost sheep does still. Number four, don't try to make Jesus in your own image. Don't try to do that. Instead, invite and welcome sinners like Jesus did. Welcome sinners like Jesus. And the fifth thing is this. God's mercy is to be rejoiced over. Rejoice when God welcomes sinners. Friends, Jesus rejoices over finding lost sinners. And he invites us to rejoice with him when they are found. Let's do that. Let's rejoice with our shepherd. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that when we wandered far, when we were lost, you sent Jesus to find us. Father, help us not to be impressed with ourselves. Help us not to uh, read our own press releases. Uh, help us not to fall into the trap of thinking that we are self-sufficient. But Father, instead, help us to remain dependent upon you, recognizing that apart from you, we can do little, if anything. Father, you are the source of our sustenance, of our care, of our protection. You've provided for us eternally security and provision. Father, help us to welcome sinners like Jesus did and to get messy and uncomfortable and all that that entails. In Christ's name, amen.